Now, here's what we concluded last week. Sin looks good and attractive in the moment. Now, so many people that we've dealt with and even looking at my own life, if I would have known the collateral damage and the continue, just the continual pain and heartache, there's a lot of things that I did that I wouldn't have done if I could go back and have a mulligan in life. Sin looks good in the moment. It looks attractive in the moment. Sin wears a glamorous costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize and kind of to dictate what sin is. Uh, as we establish, Satan comes as an angel of the light. Sin presents itself as something fulfilling. Sin, as we established, will always fascinate before it assassinates, before it dominates, before it devastates, before it deteriorates our lives. That's the, that's the progression of it. It, it. It's lust that leads to sin, that leads to death, as James would say. And if we're not careful, we start to entertain it. And so we know that we're coloring outside the lines and disobeying God. We know that when we do it. We, we, we know it. Now, here's an observation for you. I believe that the greatest frustrations in our life are a result of self-inflicted wounds when it comes to sin and rebellion. When we deal with our stuff and we look at it, reality is it's a self-inflicted wound. The, the deepest pain that people have today has come from self-inflicted decisions and choices that they've made. That, that, that's the reason for some of us it's, it's so hard because we realize that as a result of our rebellion and wickedness and evil before God, there's consequences, but we don't want to face the music. None of us do. So we try to cover it and we try to hide it and we try to suppress it and we don't want anybody to know what we've done. That's the reason, as I say, we live in this society where people are wearing these masks and these costumes, and we come across as looking somewhat healthy, but deep down inside, we're an internal mess. We live in a society where entitlement is played by not only our youth, but also the adult population. We live in a society where blaming has become the MO for most people when it comes to dealing with their carnality. I got introduced to a new word this week from my brother Nick, and the word was affluenza. I'd never read that word. I'd never studied that word, but affluenza is an interesting term. It is a defense that people are using now when, 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 when faced with possibilities and consequences for their sin and their wrong. 16-year-old kid in Texas, I want you to hear this. 16-year-old kid in Texas gets into his mom and dad's sauce. He gets hammered. He gets into his truck, 16 years old. A couple of his buddies jump on the back of the truck. He takes off down the road. He loses control. He hits these four people on the side of the road. He kills them. His buddy in the back, one, is thrown out. And to this day, he's got brain damage and major issues the other guy that was in the back of the truck had some serious issues as well. Three hours after the accident, they did the dude's blood work, and he had about a 0.24 blood alcohol level. 
So months go by and he goes to court and his family's got all this stupid money and wealth. And so they go to court and the lawyer's defense on this 16-year-old boy's behalf was he suffers from affluenza. He comes from extreme wealth and overconsumption and he really doesn't know what right and wrong is. That was the argument. Here's the thing that totally fried me, to which the judge then looked and sentenced this kid to 10 years probation, no jail time, and he must attend an alcohol and drug rehab. Why? Why why do we cover? Why do we blame? Why do we shift? Why do we do it? Why? Do we play that game so often. And, and, and reality is the majority of what we deal with day in and day out is a self-inflicted wound. We live in a society where nobody wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants to own it. So we find ourselves, man, constantly living in the ultimate masquerade party in this fallen world. There's people in here right now, teenagers and young adults and adults that Your life is a mess, but you put that mask on for about 75 to 90 minutes and you come in and your life is ruined. Deep down inside, you're crippled. And and because of the posing and the pretending and this outward beauty and this inward chaos, life goes on. Here's something I wrote out. It's like, and oh, how we wear the mask and the costumes inside the church. Allowed voice that yells with all of this passion comes with the mask of a zeal for truth. Lust masquerades as a beauty for love. Gossip does its evil work by wearing the mask of concern and prayer. Come on. A need for power and control will wear the mask of leadership The fear of man oftentimes manifests itself as having a servant's heart. You ever hear that phrase in the workplace or school place? Never, but in the church you'll go, they've got such a servant's heart. And if we're not careful, we're functioning out of a need to be needed. We need applause. We need attention. All of a sudden, it's this fear of man or wanting to please man that we do what we do all the time wearing the mask The pride of always being right will oftentimes wear the mask of a love for biblical wisdom. Hannah goes out the other day. Her and Jesse, they're in the yard hanging out. She's 12. He's 15. All of a sudden, Hannah, she comes back in and goes, Dad, I've got a question. I said, Hannah, it doesn't matter. Hannah, listen to me. What you're asking is, listen, it, it doesn't matter. She goes back out. She's out there for about 10 minutes. All of a sudden, she comes in. She's smiling. And I said, what's up? She goes, I love it when I'm right. (laughs) Anybody feel that way? it's It's not about love, and it's not about grace, and it's not about mercy, and it's not about reconciliation, and it's not about restoration. I love it when I'm right. And so the pride and the ego continues to be 
paraded. It's reality. We cover, we hide, we pose, we keep playing the game, and we see other people that are playing the game, and we think that's the way you do life. Have you ever noticed how we're so skilled at looking at our wrong and our junk and still seeing good? But we can look at the failures and the wickedness and the evil and the bad behavior of others, and oh my God, it's so obvious. Anybody struggle with that? I I mean, you tolerate in yourself what you would never tolerate in others. Have you ever noticed how even your own sin does not allow you to see yourself accurately? Anybody else struggle with that, or am I just kind of over here on an island of introspection myself? Yeah. And then rather than approaching the Lord... And rather than running to God and confronting my sin and embracing the mercy of the Lord, I start to be my own defense attorney of bringing to God all my self-righteousness of really how good I am. And if I'm not careful, and if you're not careful, we leak into playing the comparison game And we'll always find somebody worse than us to compare ourselves to so that we feel that we're a little better off. And in doing so, I usually run to the the Bundys or the Dahmers or the Hitlers or the Mansons. And I never run to the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams. You've got those people in your world. I was talking to a friend the other day. And her husband will dog other people that are drunks because they drink a quart and he only drink a pint. But he's hammered all the time. He's had multiple DUIs, and he'll dog the other dude for drinking a case where he drinks a 12-pack, but he's better. You ever do that with your sin? You ever look at others and feel like, well, compared to them, I think I'm okay? And all we're doing is suppressing and not addressing, and we keep wearing the mask. You know why we do it? You know why we do it? Because the insanity of the argument when we go there is... My greatest problem is outside of me. It's not inside of me. It's really not me. And so when we start to argue, it's insane. And what we do, what we do is we tell God, since it's outside of me, I don't need your rescuing power. What I need to be rescued is from this other pagan center hellion in the room. So if we could just move to a different place and if I could just get a different job and if I could just get my kids in a different church. No, 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 the problem is inside of us. You you can pluck a rebellious kid out of whatever environment until the heart is dealt with and a heart changed. Wherever they go, they're still gonna be there. And so the insanity spins. So, so David, David yanks the mask off, drops the costume, and pins Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 51. Y'all ready? This is all just intro building up to it. That, that, that's all that is. David yanks the mask off and says, raw, real, authentic, it's time to deal with me. Now, now follow the text. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. 
Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I done what is evil in your sight. You're justified when you speak. You're blameless when you judge. What's David saying? David is saying, I desperately need divine forgiveness. And my only chance is to run to God. David in Psalm 51, if you want to write this down, there's basically two umbrella thoughts throughout this psalm, if you will. The the two umbrella thoughts would be this. David, throughout this psalm, is crying out for the removal of sin, transgression, iniquity, wickedness. He's begging God for the removal of sin, and he's begging God for the renewal of fellowship to get right with God again. See, see, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough to know that your sin has been forgiven and removed if you don't know that that God will bring you back into renewed, restored fellowship with him. And, and so throughout Psalm 51, when you read it, when you meditate on it, and you marinate on the wording of it, that's what David is longing for. God, he starts with his confession. God, be gracious to me. Extend undeserved favor to me. I've raped Bathsheba. I've killed her husband. I've done all this vile stuff. God, would you be gracious to me? Now, listen to what he does. He confesses and approaches God based on God's character and not based on his behavior. He runs to God and sees God for being holy and pure and blameless. And he runs to God and he goes, would you, God, I... Would you, before he even gets to himself, would you, according to your graciousness, according to your loving kindness, even the word love there in the Hebrew is almost stronger than the word for love in the Greek that we use for agape. It's a strong pursuit. It's a strong, unconditional acceptance. David goes, I know your character. Your character is not on trial. Mine is. I, I, I know who you are. According to your great compassion, Compassion deals with the bowels deep down inside, the gut. I know at the gut of who you are, you love. You're compassionate. You're kind. You extend mercy. You extend grace. Oh, God, according to who you are, I come to you. You ever done that? You ever done that? And if you had to write your own Psalm one or your own Psalm 51, When you look at the vile, wicked, corrupt sin in your life, what would you write? It might be healthy over these next weeks for you to write your own Psalm 51. But David goes to God and he goes, I know who you are. Now, let me give you this. The word confess in the Greek is very similar with what we're talking about here with David's heart cry to God. The word confess in the Greek is the word homologia, homo. Logia. Homo means to desire the same. Logia means to speak. So so when David is confessing to God, what he's saying is this. I'm willing to say what you say about your character, and I'm also willing to say what you say about my sin. Make sense? You've got to own God's position. You've got to own God's thoughts. So when he gets here, he's confessing. He's confessing, I, I, I agree with you. I'm willing to say what you say. 
Let me tell you why this is important. Listen to this. Why does David, why does David run to God at, at such a violent pace, if you will, and with such a rawness of the heart? Because he's fully aware of who he's ultimately sinned against. What does he say? Against you and you only. Against you and you only. My ultimate sin was willful rebellion, disobedience, turning from you, not honoring you, not being where I was supposed to be, not doing what I was supposed to do. It was willful rebellion against you. People have said, we've counseled, Barbara and I have counseled with so many couples over the years, and the husband would be unfaithful, and all of a sudden the, the wife would say, how could he do that to me? He wasn't really at his core trying to do it against you. He's a self-centered, arrogant, egotistical maniac, and it was all about the pleasure of the moment for him that he was disobeying God. That's what he was doing. The pain is that you don't want to trust him, and you don't know if you can love him, and you don't know if you can accept him anymore. He didn't do it against you. He was rebelling against God. And until we get that in our mind, that our ultimate rebellion and our walking away is against God, we might placate it, we might suppress it, we may never address it, we may continue to do what we want. Does that make sense? It's so important. So David uses all this phraseology. He uses words like, would you please blot out? Would you wash me and cleanse me? These metaphors he's using regarding sin and transgression and iniquity and the word blot out was the portrait in that day of a dish or a plate. And, and what it meant was it meant to wipe it and to clean it so that it could be used again. And this, this is what David is saying. When I look at my life and my sin and all that I've done, you can't put anything else on my plate right now because I, I'm a sinner. I'm sick. I, I'm stained. And there's a lot of us that we never hear from God and we don't embrace God and we don't get the teachings of God because we haven't allowed God to blot out our sin, our transgression, our iniquity. And, and another thing that's emphasized is David is like, here I am, the king. You've given me messages. I've written so much of the Psalms. And not only can you not put anything on my plate, but my plate's not worth eating off of. He makes the transition in verse 13. Then I'll go teach sinners if you'll blot this out and clean me up. And there's a lot of lives today when it comes to being able to take the manna of God that you're so stained and you're so dirty and you're so filthy that you go, nobody wants to eat off my plate. And then he uses this other word for cleanse and wash and cleanse and wash. And it was the portrait of the ladies going down to the river with their garments and with their clothes. And they would soak them in the water and they would pull them out and they would drop the detergent and they would take a brush and it literally means to scrub until made white scrub until made clean so he uses these words would you blot out my would you wash me and then i'm going to soak it in the water and i'm going to make sure it's clean that's where david is in tune with his soul come on now do you see your own personal wickedness before god I'm not here to guilt you and shame you and condemn you. But when it comes to where God saved me from, I had to come to grips with my iniquity and my sin. He uses the word sin. 
He uses the word sin. Sin is an old archery term that means to miss the mark. The bullseye was the center. The rings around it were called sin, one, two, and three. So when we miss the mark, it's when we choose to do something wrong or when we refuse to do something we know is right. That's why he says in James 4, 17, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, he sins. He's missing the mark. He's We have all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. We've missed his mark. Make sense? And the unredeemed soul, the unrepentant soul left to itself will always gravitate toward arrogance and pride and self-consumption. Paul would even write it this way. Paul would say it this way in Romans 7. He goes, I've come to realize that there is nothing good that dwells inside of me. That be in my flesh. I've come to realize that when I look at me unredeemed before God, when I look at myself as alienated and separated and I haven't repented and responded, there's nothing good inside of me. So he uses that word saying, would you please blot it out? Would you wash me? Would you cleanse me? And then he uses the word transgression. And this is to choose to willfully and intentionally disobey and rebel. I'm choosing it. It's premeditated. It's calculated. It's been part of my fantasy. I've become this transgressor. It's like when you lie and you know you're lying and it's intentional and willful, that's transgressing. When you refuse to submit to biblical authority, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't love and I don't give and I don't serve and I don't share The one who knows the right thing to do and chooses intentionally and willfully is sinning. He's choosing to rebel against the authority. It's like when you drive up and you go, I'm going to run this stop sign. And you premeditate, I'm not going to stop. It's transgressing. And that's what David is saying. I know that I've missed the mark, but I know that it was premeditated and it was calculated and it was intentional Then he uses the word iniquity. And the word iniquity means to be bent out of shape. It is is not only the rebellion, but the refusal to repent from it. Man, this is heavy. So when I looked at my life and when I fell on my face in October of 85, did you know you were a sinner? Yes. Did you know you were a transgressor? That you had intentionally and willfully rebelled and disobeyed God? Yes. Did you know that you were filled with iniquity, that you were bent out of shape, refusing to repent? Yes. Yes. Then what can I do? I can homologia, I can run to God, and I can repent and receive his grace, his loving kindness, And his compassion makes sense. Who needs it? I do. Every person in this room needs it. So so, so it's important to get the backdrop of where he's crying out in this confession and the wording that he uses. God, I, I need you to be you in spite of me being me, but I'm coming to you based on you because you're the only one that can save me from me and make me the person you want me to be. 
Once that happens, I start now to move into this restored restoration, restored relationship. Now, let me give you this, and I'm going to start wrapping it up. Conviction. Conviction is an interesting word. I've got some of it in your notes, but conviction is not simply feeling guilty or feeling shame. That's not necessarily conviction. Conviction is not when you sit there and you fear this divine punishment that you're going to stand before this holy God. And people have said, if God looks at you and says, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? It's not this, I fear this divine punishment. That, 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 that's part of what we work through. But that's not necessarily conviction. Conviction is not merely knowing what's right and wrong. The Holy Spirit acts as the prosecuting attorney inside my soul and exposes what evil is and exposes that I'm lost and I need a savior. That's conviction where the Holy Spirit turns on the searchlight and says, at the core of who you are, you're lost, you're evil. You've blown it. You're separated from God. I start to feel convicted because it comes from God. Condemnation will come oftentimes from man and Satan, but conviction is a God-style word in Scripture. Conviction, where condemnation will show you the problem, conviction will show you the solution. Where, where condemnation will shame you and tell you how you've blown it, conviction will say, come to me all you who are tired and weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. The Holy Spirit, when he comes in and convicts, and if we respond, anytime there's conviction, there will be eviction. When he convicts, there has to be an eviction. You got to move out. You, you, you've taken up the throne long enough. You've messed it up, and you know you have. But if there's conviction, and I respond to the conviction, there's going to be eviction so that the Holy Spirit and the Lord can take over the throne. Come on. Make sense? Now, that is the power. So when Isaiah cries out in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was exalted and lifted up, and I saw the beauty and the holiness and the radiance of the Lord. And then he said, I said, woe is me. I'm a dirty man. I'm an unclean man. I've got unclean lips. My life is filled with stain and sin. How did you see yourself as a sinner depraved, a reprobate? How did you get there? Because I saw the glory of the Lord, and I saw this gap between holiness and sinfulness, purity and pollution, and the Holy Spirit convicted me and said, look at the gap. That's what you're looking for in life. How do you move toward it? You've got to see God for who he is. We've got to stop reducing God down to manageable terms, and we can't make God what we want him to be. We have to embrace him for who he is. As long as we try to make God one of us and we humanize God and we deify ourselves, we're going to live in the ruins of our wretchedness. And people have done that for so long. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we become convinced of how much our sin dishonors God. When you start to realize my sin dishonors God, it doesn't only just disrupt fellowship with God, but it dishonors God. Anybody ever been there? 
You ever been there where the Lord says, it, it hasn't just disrupted our hang time, you dishonor me. And I'm like, I don't want to live that way. That's the reason throwing that stinking Budweiser down on the ground that night, driving at about one o'clock in the morning, I'm like, I'm sick of living in sin, but I don't know how to stop it. Come, come, come to me, do you? You've been running from me. You've been trying to get your needs met apart from me. You've been trying to find satisfaction in the things of the world and not me. You, you've turned to these less wild lovers and not me. And when the conviction of the Lord comes, it brings about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Godly sorrow. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry in my heart that I've dishonored you. John 12, 47, I love this. John 3, 17 is similar. But Jesus says, listen, I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but I came to save it. Yes. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Revelation 12, 10 says, for the accuser of the brethren, Satan comes, and he accuses and condemns and shames. Conviction shows me that there is a loving God who has been pursuing me in spite of my wickedness and my waywardness. Condemnation says you'll never measure up. You'll never get it. You deserve to lose and bust hell wide open. Not conviction. Not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow woos me out of the ruins of my wretchedness and says, It is the heart of the prodigal when he runs home and the father chases after him and says, I've been waiting for you and looking for you. I didn't want you to die in your sin. I didn't want you to die in the far country. Let's party. I'm so glad you're home. Godly sorrow leads to repentance that's based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Joe, my buddy, about six or seven years ago, Joe had retired from baseball. Joe had made a ton of money, millions upon millions, and Joe was living a life of sin. I didn't know what was going on. Joe had done ministry with me. He had traveled throughout the U.S. and other places. We go out to dinner about six months before it went down, and we came home that night, and Barb says, I don't know Joe anymore today than I knew him eight years ago. He hides, he covers, I, there's so many masks. Joe's wife calls Barb and says, something's not right. This dude is lying. There's something going on. He's sinning, and I know it. I don't know what's up. So they do a little private investigation, get the phone records, and all of a sudden, they're calling all these numbers while old Joe's not home one day. And oh my God, they talked to a lot of interesting females and others. So we go over that night and they've done their private investigation work and they've uncovered a lot. They've got passwords to emails and all this. They, 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 them girls were good. So we go over that night and my buddy who's a counselor and myself and Barb meets with Joe and his wife and he lies and he lies and he lies. And I looked at him, and I said, the greatest disinfectant for dealing with sin is getting into the light. 
He lied. By Saturday, Joe calls. He goes, can we meet tomorrow night? Joe was tired of running. Joe was tired of his sin. So he and his wife and this other counselor buddy and Barb and I, they come over to our house. They get there at about 7. We start the meeting at 7.30, and it lasts until about 1 a.m. He's got a yellow legal pad, about eight pages. He has written down and itemized specifically every sexual violation, every alcohol, drug violation, and he read through his sin. I'm like, yeah. He, 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 he didn't get vague about it. He named names, locations. He confessed it. What happened? The conviction of the Holy Spirit was so strong on that brother's life, and I knew it. He was being convicted. The Holy Spirit was showing him, you're evil. You're in sin. Look at your life. There is a holy God that loves you, has been chasing after you, and you've been going out even trying to represent this God, talk to other people about this God, while you're living habitually in your ruins. And five hours of confession, five hours of just vomiting. A couple of days later, this dude has made millions. He could have said, I'm out of here. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to pursue the sins of the flesh. Two days later, he checks into a rehab. For 90 days, he stays in that rehab for 90 days. He's like, I got to get clean before the Lord. 45 days into it, we go over and have this meeting. And he looks at me and he says, I'm not doing this so that she will stay with me. I'm not doing this so that I can save my family. I'm doing it because I've got to know God. He gets out after 90 days. He sells everything pretty much he's got. The dude has millions. He gets rid of his image vehicle, gets one that draws no attention. He gets rid of clothing. He gets rid of anything that would draw attention to himself. He's broken. He goes through another six months of in, intense counseling. And during that time, he would come here. He's a superstar athlete, a big known guy. He's in the front of this worship center throwing pine straw. I would come down on a Monday or Tuesday. He would be in here. He's a 14-year stud. He's vacuuming the floor. He's moving furniture. He memorized Psalm 51. And he said, I had to get right with God. She going to let him back in? That's not why he did it. When he looked at the vileness of his life and the sin of his life, he goes, against God have I sinned. Was that condemnation and shame and guilt? No, that was the conviction of the Lord. And when the Lord convicts and we respond, the Holy Spirit starts to evict that stuff out of our life. And I had to drop of alcohol since. Got rid of his iPhone, iPad, went with a cheap flip phone, changed his phone number, got rid of all of his email addresses. Why? I'm not going back there. But I know the damage of my sin. Be gracious to me, O oh God, according to your loving kindness, according to your great compassion. Would you please blot it out 
cleanse me, create, or would you deal with my sin, my transgression, my iniquity? Would you deal with it against you and you only have a sin? I want to be right with you. When that happens, you can come clean. Coming clean is not acknowledging that there's a problem. Coming clean is not sharing with somebody. Yeah, yeah, I've got this porn addiction or alcohol pill addiction. Coming clean is to violently repent. And I run into the loving arms of the Savior. Listen to what he says in Isaiah. We'll wrap it up. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord longs. Listen to this word. The Lord, the nature and the heart and the character of God, God longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. Whatever your view of God is, he's this cosmic sheriff. He wants to beat you up. He wants to shatter you. Stop it. He waits on high to have compassion for you. The Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Back to 1 John. If we confess our sins to him, the one who sits on high, who is long-suffering and loving kindness and gracious and compassionate, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us as far as the east is from the west. He's faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all transgression, from all iniquity and sin, from all. What did you need to be forgiven of? I need to be forgiven of all of it, not some of it. What happened? Confess it, itemize, get specific before God. Here's the hidden stuff. Nobody knows it, but I've got to get it clean with you. And then write your own Psalm 51 to the Lord. That's what he says right here. Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads to repentance. What is repentance? It's when I look at all my junk and the vileness of my life, the self-inflicted wounds. You've been betrayed. You've been hurt. You've been rejected. All of us have. But the majority of our frustrations, the deepest ones are the self-inflicted ones. And we repent, we unplug, and we turn from it, and we plug into Jesus only. All right, Lord, my sin is ever before me. That's what he said. Bathsheba now lives with me. She's one of my wives, Solomon. We had her after that other baby died. My sin's ever before me. My kids are raising hell. You said the sword would never leave but I'm plugging into you. I'm going to run to you. You're my refuge and you're my hiding place. You're a safe place. I lift up my eyes to you. That's where my strength comes from. I'm running to you. So all of these great Psalms we read was written by a man who repented and ran to the king fearfully and I'm wonderfully made if I go to heaven you're there if I go to hell you're there search me and know me oh God know my anxious thoughts and know if there be anything inside of me I want to know you that's where it starts 
And my deepest prayer for you on this beautiful day, this Mother's Day, is that each and every one of you would violently, if there's sin that you're still living in, that you would repent and you would run to the gracious, compassionate, loving kindness of the Lord and say, I want to know you. It's not too late. Your sin's not that crippling. The grace of God is greater than. The love of God is greater. Thank you, Jesus.